Hope y'all are doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 16. On your way in, you probably saw a new greeter here at Remedy. Um, one couldn't come because of the snow, so we built one out there just to greet you on your way in. So I hope Frosty waved to you and said, hey. I'm just kidding. We didn't have actually one not come. Uh, our our uh, volunteers were here early, uh, doing a great job. We did have no power uh, when the band first got here this morning, so the Lord turned the power on in the building and some heat, so that's nice. Um, so anyway, or else we would have had our flashlights upside down in the middle of the room and it would have been a little bit different. Anyway, uh, so we are going to be in Acts chapter 16 today. We have been preaching through the book of Acts now for a while. If you weren't here last week, um, I'm going to go over the sermon from last week because it's really a two-part. Last week was uh, the first and this would be the second. So I'm going to review last week really quickly and then we'll, we'll look at the text today. But uh, I'm going to pray first for us all to uh, be filled with the Spirit and have eyes to see and hear from the Lord this morning. And then we will we'll jump in. So let's pray together and then we will we'll start at Acts chapter 16. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love, your mercy. Thank you for the snow this morning. Thank you for those that are here. We pray for everyone to be safe. Uh, God, we, we're just reminded when we see snow... Uh, that you do cover us with your righteousness if we're in Christ. You watch us white as snow. And so it's, it's just a picture of, again, of again your, your extravagant grace that you've shown us. And we pray, Lord, for uh, this morning that you give us all eyes to hear and see from you, from your word this morning. We pray that uh, as we see how Paul uh, planted a church in the city of Philippi and what were some of the specific people he went to and what were some of the specific things he did, that we would... See and understand just how applicable this is to our own very lives as we want to do mission in our community groups, as we want to do mission in our lives, as we want to do mission in this church. And so we pray uh, this morning that you would come now and speak to us and speak through me, Lord. We all need to hear from you, including myself. If anyone here doesn't know Christ this morning, I pray that you would save them this morning, Jesus. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we looked at Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 10. And as we were looking at those, t- those first 10 verses, uh, we were seeing what, is, what are, I should say, some of the church planting strategies. What are some of the, the prudent principles for church planting? So let me go ahead and review those from last week. And then there's just one more from this week, but uh, I- I'll talk for a while on that one point. So uh, let's go ahead and put up the, these last words. So we saw, if you're going to plant a church, uh, these are some of the things you should do. And as I said last week, Whatever you're seeing in, in church planning strategies, uh, you can employ in your own specific life. So um, for your community group, for your life. So last week we saw, number one, that you need to have a clear call from God. Number two, we're going to go through these rather quickly, that you need to get the right team around you if you're going to do that. Number three, the next, that you should know your culture that you're going to. You should remove hindrances for gospel advancement. Uh, advancement. We talked about what were some of the functional saviors. That was whenever, the only thing you probably remember last week is when I talked about how I put a magnetic coffee cup in my car and fool people. That was that part. Uh, number four, um, put up number four for me. There it is. Follow the Holy Spirit's leading. Uh, so whenever you're going to plant a church, you need to follow the Holy Spirit. You, you, you need to make plans, but la- allow the Holy Spirit to plant the church. Lastly, preach the gospel. Lastly, preach the gospel. So those, those were the five things that we saw. That was part one. And now, uh, this particular week, uh, we're going to do, there's only one more point, if you will, w- only one more thing, and that's if you're going to plant a church, you need to gather a core team. So go ahead and put up number six. 
gather a core team. And that's really everything we're going to look at today. Uh, Verses 10 through 34 is gathering of the core team. Now, as we're looking at the gathering of the core team, we're going to look at three specific conversations that Paul is going to have with three, three different kinds of people. Now, surely more people were saved and, and reached in the gathering of the core team and planning this church in Philippi. We're, we're absolutely sure. As Paul writes back to, to the Philippians later on, we can see that lots of people were reached. So one of the big, best, best questions we can ask is, why did Luke record these three specific gospel conversations that Paul had to reach and start this church. Whenever we see it and whenever we understand that, um, I think it's because, then we get our, our understanding of the text. I think that as, as we're going into this, there's, there's some things about these three conversations that he has that are just helpful for us. So um, the, the, the title of today's sermon is Three Gospel Conversations. And what my goal is to do is this. Uh, I, I hear from community group leaders, especially as, I'm, we're, as we're talking, uh, that especially as we've been going through the book of Acts. And usually the conclusion, the application of most of these sermons is, here we see how they're doing effective evangelism. Use these things in your own life. And here you can do effective evangelism. You should see this. Go do effective evangelism. And so there's lots of talk in our community groups where they say, um, we believe that. We want to do that. We, we talk about evangelism a lot. I even heard one of our community group leaders say this. We talk about evangelism a lot, but the action part we still haven't quite done. And so what I'm wanting to do today is this. As we're looking at these three specific conversations, I want you, as you see this, to get an answer on how do I do evangelism. So I'm hoping that this is going to give you some handles on uh, whenever I'm doing evangelism, I can, I can think about who they are and I can reach these particular people this way. I know that when you're, you're supposed to, and I know likely most of you feel scared to do it because likely you just don't know how to do it. You just don't know what to say, perhaps. Um, and so Acts chapter 16, verses 10, or, or really 11, I should say 11, 11 through 34 is going to give you uh, some specific encounters of three different kinds of people to help you feel more equipped or better equipped to do evangelism. So when we see this, uh, I want you to ask a few questions to yourself. Why did Luke record these? And I've already answered this because likely he's given us three different scenarios on how to reach people. Uh, another thing that you can also see is these three people are completely different, which means the gospel is for everyone. So uh, whenever you hear pushback or whenever you actually think, I don't know if, the, I don't know if this particular person is, is ready to be, be reached, of course they are. There is, no, there is no type to become a Christian. Every person that's a sinner, that's been made in the image of God, that uh, has a, uh, all the same problem, which is sin, is the right type to hear the gospel in order to be saved. Now, you, you have to share the gospel. Like we, we've said this a thousand times at Remedy. The gospel is like a diamond. You can turn it and you can see it from a billion different views. And the person that you're reaching to needs to understand how you're looking at the gospel to explain it to them. So, and we'll even look at that today. Like, uh, what are some effective ways to do it? But whenever we're doing that, there is no specific type for person that's ready for the gospel. Every single person is ready to hear the gospel. So I'm hoping today you'll have some, some practical evangelism strategies today in these three different gospel conversations. So Paul's going into, I do want to show the map one more time. I'm trapped in, but I'm going to try it this way. I'm going to go this way. So if you remember, Paul, uh, and and whenever he was planning the church, the first missionary journey he did was from Antioch. He kind of went into this region and he said, let's go do it again. He had that, that disagreement with Barnabas. And so he goes up this little red line and he goes all the way over here to Troas to where eventually somebody says, come over to Macedonia. Come over to, uh, in, in a dream. Come over to Macedonia. So he's, 
He goes over to Macedonia and he lands right here in Philippi. This was not on his plans, but this is how he, he brings the gospel to Philippi through, through a vision that he had. So this is where he's going. Now, I know that you're not necessarily tremendously familiar with first century uh, maps, but this is, I think it's good whenever we start seeing he went from here to he went from here, there to at least kind of get an idea. So he's going to sail across here. He's going to get to Philippi. He's going to land. He's going to start Basically, in, an unreached, in his mind, unreached place. This is, not, this is a new place, so we're going to do what we can. And he, he employs the same strategy as, as, he, as he goes into most cities. It's usually the same strategy, which is go to where the lowest hanging fruit is first. Try to get them saved and then go to the harder places. So he usually goes into the synagogue where they have a little bit of an understanding of the Messiah, a little bit of an understanding of the Old Testament, tries to preach the gospel to those particular places and... Get, get, a, get a core group, and as that happens, let them start going out to the harder to understand people. Now here, there are, or to, the harder to reach people. There, are no, there is no synagogue, per se, but there is a place that he can go uh, to still do the same thing. So start at verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. Samothrace, go back to that map, is just a, uh, an island on the way. It's this little island right here. It's not labeled, but... He goes to there, and then he keeps going. That's just for, if you wanted to know that. Uh, so he goes from Samothrace to the following day to Neapolis, and there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remain in this city some days. And here, here we go. Here's, here's how he starts his strategy. Verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where uh, we supposed there was a place of prayer. So since there was no synagogue in this place, still same strategy, let's go to where there's people that are religious. Let's go to where there's people. If, if people are gathering together for prayer, that's the low-hanging fruit of the city. Let's go see if they're receptive and ready to hear the gospel. So he goes to this place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman who had uh, come together. One who heard from us, heard us, was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. Now, so he goes to the place of prayer because there's no synagogue. Paul went there looking for people that could be saved. And so he ran into this lady that's a seller of purple goods. Uh, purple goods back then, uh, when you wore something purple, it was a sign of, that you had arrived. It was very expensive. It was kind of the ultimate status symbol. Uh, very, very expensive. They, they wore it to show that they had arrived because it was so expensive. That in order to get this, it came from a mullock that was found in the Mediterranean there. And you had to get, I'm going to make sure I get this right, you had to get 8,000 of those to get one gram of ink into the dye. And then you could start using that ink to dye pur- uh, purple fabric. So it was very expensive. And this lady, she was a business lady, she, uh, she sold this. So she was probably pretty wealthy. Uh, and, and had arrived, if you will, in a lot of ways. And on the Sabbath, I'm going to go back to 13. We, we went outside to the gate to the riverside. We supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the woman who had come... Who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Now, uh, this doesn't mean that she's a believer because you can see the next little sentence after that says, The Lord opened her heart. So uh, she believed in a God. She believed that there was a God. She, be- she, she came to the place of prayer. So she's, she's very receptive and very open to things that are spiritual. You can relate that to today. She's, she's a businesswoman. She's Probably very wealthy. She's very open to spiritual things. So we're going to see... The reason why I'm pointing all this out is because I want you to see the differences in these three conversations. The differences in the three people and the way that Paul, uh, Paul employs uh, evangelism to him. So he, he goes to her and it says, just 
right off, she was already open to all this. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So for her, she needed information. She needed to understand. She was, she was wealthy. She understood things. She was, she was already going to prayer. She just needed Paul to explain the true gospel to her. And of course, the Lord had to open her heart. So the Lord opened her heart. And after this, she was baptized, her and her whole household as well. And she urged us to, to stay. If you had judged me to be faithfully, come to my house. And it says, and she prevailed on us. So go to, go to the gospel conversations. Uh, gospel conversation number one. Gospel conversation number one was Lydia the spiritually interested. Lydia, the spiritually interested. So, who was she? She was put together, well, uh, likely older, a wealthy businessman, driven, very smart, well-known, well-respected, and she's religious. Uh, She's at a prayer meeting. She's not a Christ follower, but she's open. How does she get saved? She gets saved because Paul engages her um, very on on a a, a kind of an academic mind level, essentially what could be a... uh, a Bible study in some kind of way. And as he does this, he tells her who, who Jesus is. She pays attention. Um, the Lord opened her heart to understand who, who he was, and she was saved. Uh, John Stott says that when it says that uh, the Lord opened her heart, this is highlighting for us the sovereignty of God. John Stott says that is, he opened her inner eyes to see and believe in the Jesus that Paul proclaimed. And so Lydia uh, then invited the companions uh, likely she had a pretty, pretty nice house, invited them to stay, uh, uh, to, to stay with her and stay in the city and continue to use her kind of home as a way to gather people and, and keep, continue to plant the church in Philippi. Uh, and she's already practicing immediate hospitality as a believer. John Stott has a great line. He said, for once the heart is open, she saved, the home is opened also. So she immediately starts practicing Christian hospitality. So When we're looking at this first conversation, and I'm wanting to relate it to you, because you know, as a believer, I want to see people get saved. And yes, I even want to be used by God to do it. I just don't want to pray for my neighbors to get saved and, you know, that somebody else does it. I really want to do it. How can you engage with Lydia? How can you engage with someone like Lydia, the spiritually interested? What are some ways that you can do this? Um, She thinks herself as, as I said, a religious person. And so there's people in our community that will fit this background. They have, they have a Christian background or they have, they have interest in spiritual things. So how can you reach them? The best way to reach this particular person is just have uh, repeated opportunities to expose them to the Bible. Because they're interested in it. They're interested in the Bible. Invite them to church. These are the, actually the people that whenever I kind of mess with you and say, evangelism and just church, of, uh, church invitation. Actually, for these particular people, evangelism is pretty effective with church invitation. You can invite them, expose them to the Bible. If they can't come to this church uh, or, or a church, then you just invite them to read the Bible with you. Hey, you know what? Let's get together and just read the book, the book of John. Jack does an amazing job at this at Winthrop. He has several students that are, that are like Lydia. Meet, let's meet me through and just read through John. And we'll just... Because we believe in the power of the word and that it's going to do what it's going to do, like the Lord's going to open their heart because of the word. We just believe that this Bible's sufficient in all these things. So they don't know how powerful the word is yet. They're not believers, but we do. So let's just read the Bible together. And then the Lord does amazing things and opens their heart and they get saved just by reading through the book of John. Um, I've seen this happen myself. 
Uh, you can start, if you can't read through them, you can start a larger Bible study. Or you can just invite them to, to read a good Christian book, whether it be God is the Gospel of Hype or The Reason by God by Tim Keller or, or whatever you're reading. It doesn't have to be those. It can be anything. Just invite them to read a book with you. The, the point is, the way you reach them is just expose them to the Bible. Invite them to church. Invite them to read the Bible with you. And the Lord, uh, if he, if he is, grants it, will we'll save them. And so... Uh, I think that when you hear this, this phrase, the Lord opened her heart, it should be something that brings you, especially with evangelism, a whole lot of relief. A whole lot of relief because it takes the pressure off of you. You think to yourself, I have to perform, I have to read right, I've got to have all the, all the answers, I've got to know how to answer the dinosaur question. Like, there's all these things I'm not sure what to do. How do, I, how do I do effective evangelism with them? Well, the Lord opened their heart. And when we hear that, it takes the pressure off of me because God's the one that does the convincing. God's the one that's going to save them. I am faithful by, by reading the word with them, putting the word out there, if you will, and the Lord's going to save them. Now, uh, there's a myth that, that says uh, the best people at evangelism are the extreme extroverts. While that might be true, the best people at actually having uh, unawkward conversation are extreme extroverts. I, I, I'm an pretty high introvert. When we started the church, I took one of those personality tests, and they rate you from zero to, to, to 30. Zero to 30 on things, and I rated all the way to 30 on introverts. So, like, like I just want to be by myself and read. That's all I want to do. Um, having conversations after, hi, how you doing, where you from? Okay, I've been there. Once I get there, I'm literally in my head thinking, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. I hope they say something, because I'm, I'm done. I have no more questions. Ah, and so, like, but there's this, <laughs> there's this mindset that says when we get over to extroverts, uh, because I'm an extrovert, you're actually better at evangelism. You might not think I'm an, an introvert, I'm an extrovert because I'm up here talking, but I'm up here talking, but we're not talking, right? So I don't, I don't have, I'm not have this pressure in my head where I, I have to have a conversation. This is just all me, so I'm fine with this. Um, it's just when we get one-on-one, I'm freaking out. Um, anyway, so uh, anyway, back to the myth of extroverts. Whenever uh, people think that extroverts are the best evangelists, that's not necessarily the case because... Because salvation evangelism, remember, salvation belongs to God, and he's the one that opens the heart, and faith comes by hearing. So, I mean, our part is literally expressing the gospel in some kind of manner, reading the word. So anyone can do this. So whenever we believe that salvation comes from God and faith comes by hearing, it takes a lot of the pressure off of you and puts the responsibility on God. And here's the good news. God can handle that. It's not too much for him to handle. He's not freaking out, wringing his hands like, oh no, they just put all the responsibility on me. What am I going to do? He can handle it. So, um, the Lydia's that are all over spread around Rock Hill, everyone can do this kind of evangelism. I think that everyone can do that. Now, that's how you reach the first person. Conversation number one, the Lydia's of Rock Hill. But here's the problem, and I think for most of us that, and most churches, evangelism with that kind of person stops here. Most people do that kind of evangelism that are Christians, especially in North America, do a pretty good job, but the rest of the city won't be reached by this method because they're vastly different. They're vastly different people. We're probably mostly all good at this, but um, let's look at the other two and get some other evangelistic strategies. So, second, conversation number two, the slave girl. Conversation number two, the slave girl, the physical and spiritual captive. All right, so... She prevails on them. This, this means that she's very, very effective in trying to get them to stay. Uh, and they say yes. And then 
Paul's going to do this the next day. And it says, 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Now, let's, let's, be, let's be careful here. Uh, this slave girl was not going to the place of prayer. It's as they were going to the place of prayer, we, we walked upon her. She was not going there. Uh, she's not going there for one reason. She's not allowed to because she's owned by people. She's owned by people. Number two, she's not going there. She's not interested. There is no, like, unlike Lydia, there is no interest in her to ever go to the place of prayer. So uh, maybe you can relate to it this way. Rock Hill actually has a mosque. Uh, and if you know, it's on, it's on Main Street. There's never going to be a time no matter what slick sermon series is going on there, on anything, that I'm ever going to feel compelled to go there. Not ever. And likely none of you are ever going to feel compelled to go there. For the slave girls of the world, for, the, for the, the uninterested in Christianity in Rock Hill, they're never going to feel compelled to come here. And no matter what series, it doesn't matter how great our music is, it doesn't matter how our sermon series is, it doesn't great, matter how great our kids in youth ministry are, they're not interested. For Lydia's maybe, but not for the slave girls of Rock Hill. They're just... Completely uninterested in that kind of stuff. So a different evangelism strategy has to be used. As we were going to the place of prayer, we met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her, own, uh, brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and, and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And notice they, she followed them around and she screamed this. Um, as a matter of fact, if you look at verse 18... It says, and, she, and this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed. I mean, you can just imagine for several days when someone's following you around for several days, screaming, these men are servants of the Most High God to proclaim you the way of salvation. Over and over and over and over. Uh, and hey, could you pipe it down? I'm trying to do evangelism. Uh, but she's not. Then, oh God, okay. I should do evangelism to her. Um, so... Uh, and then Paul looks at her, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And it came out of that very hour. So they're going there. And Luke tells us a couple things about her that we need to make sure we understand to help us understand who she is. She had a spirit in her that led her somehow pretty able to predict the future. Spirit of divination, not from, not from Jesus. And in so, because she was likely very young, she was owned by people. And these, you know, these circus owners owned her and, and made money off of her. And because of that, these owners exploited this ability she had. They made it for the, they exploited her out, let her do this stuff, not for her gain, but for their own gain, which made her a captive. She was captive to these people. They, she had no choice. She was, in a lot of ways, a, uh, a slave to them. So who is this girl? This girl is the opposite of Lydia in many ways. She's the opposite. She say that she was probably, scholars say that she's probably in her mid-teens. She has a demon. She's a slave. She's spiritually and economically a captive to these owners. Um, she's, she's the, uh, when you look at it today, she's, she's someone who's been sinned against many times. She's been busted up and taken advantage of a lot of times. Far different than Lydia. So the evangelism for her is far different than Lydia. She's not interested in spiritual things. She's not interested in coming to church. No matter how awesome our sermon series or music is, she's not coming. She's not on her way to the prayer meeting, as I said. So they, she follows Paul around. She's screaming. Um, These men are servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming you to the way of salvation. And she's following them around in her captivity, screaming this out. Uh, and she does this for many days. 
many days. Paul says, becomes greatly annoyed. This verb in the Greek can be translated in two different ways, um, actually. It can either be that he's really peeved or really grieved. It's one of those two. Uh, ESV chooses really peeved. Uh, but it could be that he's actually grieved for her. It, either way, it, it's, it's, you know, it's a translation, so they're making a determination. I don't, I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm just saying we don't know. Like it, 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 maybe it's a combination of the two. He's so like grieved for her that he's also kind of ticked off that she's following him around. Either way. Um, but in all of that happening, he turns to her and commands her in the name of Jesus Christ for the uh, spirit to come out of her. And it came out of that very hour. So how does this girl get saved? Paul performs on her an act of deliverance. He gives her an act of deliverance. He throws the demon out of her, which also removes her uh, as from the circus, and her masters can't make money anymore. And Stott says it this way. Deliverance took place for this girl, and she too became a member of the Philippian church. She too became a member of the Philippian church. Now, so this means for her, this is a vastly different way of meeting Jesus than it was for Lydia. So how do you engage with the slave girls? How do you engage with people that are captive? How do you engage with people in Rock Hill that have no interest in spiritual things, that are economically captive, physically captive, however you want to say it, that are busted up and and mistreated by people, the people that have been constantly in their life sinned against, and they're just beat down? Um, The way that you reach them is different than the way you reach Lydia. The way that you reach them is to get deeply involved in their lives. You get deeply involved. It's not an invitation. It's not an invitation. You have to have tender, ongoing, prolonged, Christ-like love in the, with them. It's going to take a while. It has to be, you have to give much time to them. She needs your time. He or she needs your time. He or she needs your, your elongated love. And explaining the gospel to her can be very easy. Um, it's done by highlighting that we are also delivered by Jesus Christ. That this is an easy concept for her to understand. That she, all she wants is deliverance from her situation. All she wants is being sinned against to have a, a feeling of expiation or washing clean. From, or taken away from all the sin that's been done against her. And so you come to her in the most tender, loving way and explain to her... What you want can be given to you only by Jesus. He can free you. He can deliver you. And he can wash all these things away from you. This is the affection that she's never been shown. And it can be shown to her by Christ. And in this situation, it does. We won't reach the slave girls by slick preaching, music, whatever. You have to get, I have to get involved in their messy lives. Lydia's life wasn't messy. It's easy to reach her and we don't feel like we have to really do much. But with the slave girls, with these particular kind of people in Rock Hill, it is going to be messy. It is going to be time consuming. And it's going to make you feel like at times you don't know what you're doing. Because you won't. The secret that every pastor needs to tell their congregation is, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> like, we, we have, I, I don't have any idea. We're just, as things happen... We do ministry, and we, Holy Spirit, fill me and give me, give me the ability to do this. You shouldn't feel any different than that. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the truth. Um, you have to get down in their lives and have, and have uh, real time with them and realize it's okay that you don't know what you're doing. 
But you know how to love people. You do. So the way that you, the way that you reach them is through uh, giving them your time. Giving them your time. Now, we've got to get to the next, next segment, so let's, let's see what happens. Obviously, when, this, when Paul throws the demon out of her, uh, she can't practice this spirit of divination anymore. She can't predict the future anymore. So her owners have no way to make money. And for them, that's going to be something that's going to make them mad. They have an income stream. The income stream's cut off. Paul did it. So they're not going to go shake Paul's hand and say, hey, you know, you got it. Good job. I guess we'll move on to the next thing. We're entrepreneurs. That's not what's going to happen. They're very mad at Paul. So here's what happened. Verse 19. So when their owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and disturbing our city. They're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Roman citizens to accept or practice. The crowd joined in and attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them, and they gave them orders to beat them with rods. So Paul now is going to be persecuted for the faith. He's going to experience extreme, uh, extreme beating. Verse 23, when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So the, the, Roman, uh, the Roman law had a, had a law that said officially Roman citizen could not practice what, what would be called an alien cult uh, and it hadn't received a public sanction from the state. Uh, but customarily he might do so as long as his cult didn't otherwise offend other people in the law. And so the slave owners were clever. They knew of this law. And so they said, uh, they concealed the reason that they were bringing this public, which is they lost money. But uh, their economic hopes were gone. They concealed that, but they went forward and they said, here's the charge. This is what's going on. They're practicing this, this law or this, this cult practice in front of people. And it's bothering us and we don't want it. It's kind of, a, it's certainly a lie. Uh, and that causes Paul and Silas to be arrested and beat, put in prison the inner stocks, and then fastened in those. So in this particular time, I just want to ask you to get yourself in that particular moment. You're, you're, you're being obedient. Macedonia, come over here. You're following around. You've got one con- conversion. You've got another one. Both of them uh, are, one's extremely wealthy. One is going to need lots and lots of uh, personal attention. You're going on. You're still trying to, to re- tell people about Christ. And as that happens, these, these slave owners uh, lie against them. They get beat down, and then they're thrown into jail. And as they're in jail, I just want you to put yourself like, God, you called me over to Macedonia to do your work, and I'm doing it. And all of a sudden, as I'm leading people to Christ, bringing deliverance, all of a sudden, uh, my, my evangelism's over. I'm sitting in a jail right now. Uh, in the inner prisons, which is the lowest part of the building, it's disgusting. This is where all the fecal matter ran down into. It's dark and dank. They put me in the stocks. This isn't like, you know, you take your little picture at the fair stocks. This is, they grab them by their feet and they hang them upside down and usually hang them upside down. It'd be very painful. And you're, they're in their inner stocks in the inner prison. And instead of being, I mean, for me, I'm thinking, why, why God is this happening? I, I'm trying to do your work. And now this is what happens. Why is this happening? What would be your reaction at this particular moment? What would be your reaction? I'm, I'm going to confess. When I read verse 25, that's not my reaction. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. That's not what I'm thinking. I'm not thinking, hey, Silas, start singing. Let's have a worship service at midnight here. I, I would be 
pretty frustrated. Stott says, it's a wonderful, it is wonderful that such, with such pain, with lacerated backs and aching limbs, Paul and Silas about midnight were praying and singing hymns to God. Not groans, but songs came to their mouths. Instead of cursing men, they blessed God. No wonder the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, I want that to be me. I want that to me, but if I'm thinking about myself, I don't know. I just don't know. Which brings us to what would be conversation three. So all this happens. Conversation three, the Philippian jailer, who's likely the skeptic. So it says this. They're singing, praying, and the prisoners were listening. Verse 26. And then suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke up, he saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Now, we're going to keep going, but let's stop here for a second. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? Who is this jailer? He was probably a highly decorated Roman soldier. Uh, likely, he had been in, in a, uh, a, a soldier for a long time. And if you're in there for a long time, as you get older, as like a retirement gift, they would give you uh, oversight of a jail. So it's easier than, than being a soldier. And so he's there. So he's probably older. He's probably hardened in his life, part of the ruling class. Likely very cynical, seen lots of murder, seen lots of bad things and on all sides, but likely become a, a highly skeptical person. And he puts Paul and Silas into this inner, inner uh, stocks. Now, if you are the lead jailer and people escape, it means you're dead. Like, there's no question asked with the Roman government. They, they are ruthless people. If people escape under your watch, you're dead. So he knew that. The earthquake happened. He's just assuming, well, everybody's gone. An er- he could go try to make his case to Rome, but an earthquake happened. And they say, we know you're dead. Like, so but he's just going to kind of shortcut the circuit there, if you will. That's probably not the way to say it. But you know what I mean, though. He's trying to just get it over with himself. He's like, well, I'm just going to kill myself. Uh, but Paul screams out, don't do it. We're all here. We're all here. You don't have to do that. And so he comes in in verse 29. The jailer calls for lights rushed in, and he sees that they're all there. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. So here's a question I think we can ask. Why is Paul still there? The earthquake happened. Doesn't God cause earthquakes, right? Isn't this like, hey, Paul, this is in Monopoly. This is your jail out of free, get out of jail free card. What are you doing? Um, why is he still there? He's innocent. He doesn't have to be there. He shouldn't be in prison. He was falsely accused, falsely beat, falsely put in there. The walls just fell down. His chains just came, came off. This is an act of God. And Peter in Acts 12, when that happened, he walked out. Isn't he supposed to do the same thing? Why is he still there? This is why. Paul recognized when God gave him that vision from Macedonia, come over here, that this is a sovereign part of, of God's plan to reach Philippi. And he wants to reach the Philippian jailer. Everything for Paul is evangelism. This guy right here, I want the jailer to get saved. If I run, I, he won't get saved because I won't tell him. I'm staying. So he stays. He had prayed for God to use him at Philippi. Not likely he didn't think it would be this way. But it's part of God's plan to reach Philippi. This 
jailer is part of Philippi, so it's part of God's plan for this thing to happen and for him to stay in order to reach the jailer. And this was a price he was willing to pay. He wanted to let the Philippian jailer, uh, he wanted to tell the Philippian jailer about verse 25. When the earthquake happened, he wanted to look at the guy and say, remember verse 25 when we're singing at midnight after you just beat us? Here's why. So the guy runs in, falls down uh, at, at, his, at his feet. So Paul's standing there. When the, when, the, when the earthquake happens, Paul's standing there with freedom in one hand to be able to run away and a cruel man at the other hand who had tortured him probably the night before at the other. And you can see, because he could, could have left, why the Philippian jailer was so moved that Paul was still there, falling down on his feet, or falling down on his knees, trembling with fear before Paul and Silas. He falls down, and then it says this. He fell down before him, verse 30. Then he brought Paul and Silas out and looked at them, and doesn't ask the question that all of us would think, right? What's the first question we would all ask? Why didn't you run? Why didn't you run? But because of verse 25, he already knows why. So we can just get to the next part. We, we can get straight to the answer. How can I be saved? Now, that's never happened to me. No one's ever just randomly, because we had a worship service, how can I be saved? But I mean, he didn't ask why they ran, because he already knew from verse 25. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? One of the most concise gospel presentations in the Bible, verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus. What... But he asked, what must I do to be saved? You can't do anything. Jesus has done it all. Trust in Christ. Believe in Christ and you'll be saved. He answers him. Verse 33, or verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all that were in his household. So they did explain the gospel, verse 33. And he took them. This is pretty, this is pretty, this is pretty amazing. This is just, this is God, verse 33. The Philippian jailer took them in the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. Chrysostom says, as a token of penance, he washes the wounds that he caused. He washed them and he was washed. He washed their wounds and he was washed from his sins. Pretty amazing. I mean, this is just something that likely he was part of the torturing of them. And he's washing those very wounds that he caused after meeting Christ. And it says, verse 34, Then he brought them to his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So how do you engage the Philippian jailer? How do you engage the Philippian jailer? We've talked about how to engage Lydia. talked about how to engage the slave girls. How do you engage the Philippian, the Philippian jailers? And there's, there's really two strategies that you, see, you can see here, and both of them are very effective. Number one, let them observe your indomitable joy in the midst of suffering. Your indomitable joy in Christ in the midst of suffering. No matter what, I'm going to rejoice in Christ no matter what happens. Now, I know that I can say that having lived a rather uh, easier life that's kind of been more free of persecution and suffering. But I can say it, can say it, clearly from the, see it clearly from the scriptures that this is the way we reach them. The skeptics need to see that whenever... Junk happens in your life, you're not running. That Jesus is your only hope still, whether good or bad. The other way, though, is this. The skeptics need to see extravagant grace be shown to them. That's what they do. They don't run. What do they do? They stay. They show, for this guy, 
It cost him his life. They show extravagant grace to him. God had appointed this particular time in Paul's life to suffer and be put in jail to reach the jailer. And the way he reached them was by letting the jailer observe his um, unshakable uh, joy in Jesus, no matter what happens in his life. And he gave this guy extravagant grace. Extravagant grace. He didn't run. John 16, says, in the world, Jesus says, in the world you have tribulations, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So in the midst of our tribulations, we can, as Christ commands us, be of good cheer. And we can use that to do evangelism. Now I have one more map I want to show you. I have one more map I want to show you. I'm going to go ahead and put it up. This is our city. This is where we live. This is where you live somewhere. You can, you can look on there and you can find in that general direction where it is you live in York County. I zoomed in maybe a little too, little too far, but if you live out of that, just picture that you're right here. And this is what I want you to think. Listen, there's a Lydia right here. There's a Lydia right here. Wherever you live, there, there's a Lydia right here beside you. Where, I don't know where you live. There's a Lydia there. And this is the deal. That Lydia right there is interested in Jesus. That Lydia right there is waiting for you to come alongside her and share the Bible with her. She's waiting for you to come and invite her to church. She's waiting for you to read the book of John with her. She's waiting for you right now. She's lost. She's in this city. She's spiritually hungry. She's got most of her life put together. She's the low-hanging fruit of Rock Hill. And she's waiting for you to come and invite her. Outside of her relationship with Jesus, she's perishing. And she's, she's right here in our city waiting for you to come and share Christ with her. But also, right here there's a slave girl. Down here in South Rock Hill, there's a slave girl. There's someone who's been busted up by life. In the Winthrop campus, maybe your roommate. There's someone there who's been beat up by life. And they need for you to come and spend enormous amounts of time with them. They need for you to get involved in their messy life. They need for us, they need for us to not uh, put ourselves first, but to consider others more important than us. And in humility come and love them and serve them and be with them. She's, she might be your next door neighbor. I don't know. She lives really close to you. There are a ton of slave girls in Rock Hill that need for us to come alongside them. But there's also a Philippian jailer. There's, for some of you, tragedies that have happened in your life. And there's skeptics in the academic world. There's skeptics that, that are, uh, have more money that live on the lake. There's skeptics that have lost someone close to them. Maybe a child, maybe a wife, maybe a husband. And they need to see that you are going to find all of your hope and joy in Christ in the midst of your own personal suffering. Maybe someone's just sinned against you and you're just going to show them extravagant grace and they're going to say, I can't believe you're showing me that much grace. And then it's an easy inroad to, to the gospel. You, you think I'm showing you grace. There's someone that can show you infinitely more grace than me. Infinitely more grace. You need to meet this person. You need to know Jesus. We've got people all over our city this is just three gospel conversations. There's a lot of different 
types of people. These are just three. But this gives us ideas. Not everybody, not everybody is a Lydia with a simple church invite and let's read the book of John. There are people. And if that's where you are, please do that. Please do that. The Lord will open hearts. He's, he's the God of salvation. Do that. But there's all kinds of people in our city with all kinds of ways to reach them. What I want you to do is this. As we uh, wrap up the sermon, I want you to, number one, however you're taking notes, just resolve. Like, write it down. God, I want to do this. I don't know how. I want to do this. Help me. If you, if you are feeling led by the Lord to say, okay, I understand how. I, I have a better understanding of how I can engage with people in my city. And I want to. I believe I should. Just write it down. Today. March the 10th, 12th, whatever it is. I want to do, do it today. 11th. This is the day I want to, this is the day I want to start. And then after that, perhaps right now in your life, you have somebody that's like Lydia, that's like the slave girl, that's like the Philippian jailer. Write down their name right now. And during this time, pray for them. During this time, think about how you can be used by God to tell them this week, this month, this year about Jesus. God's not like a, a God of timetables and deadlines on you. And he's not mad if you don't reach him. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. But faith comes through hearing. And he wants you to be the person that tells people so they hear. So I'm going to pray. And uh, we're going to go into a time of uh, Lord's Supper and response. Before we go into the Lord's Supper, I just want you to spend some time in prayer. What you just wrote down, Lord, I want to help me. I don't know how or I want to do it. And this particular person's name, I want you to just pray over those things as I pray. And then we'll go into the time of Lord's Supper where we celebrate the amazing forgiveness that we've received that we proclaim to others that we've received. Where we think about his body broken for us, we think about his blood shed for us. And we give Christ all the glory. We celebrate the forgiveness that we want to proclaim to others. So, as I pray, you pray. And then whenever you're ready, you can come forward and get the bread and get the cup and come back to your chair. And uh, I'll lead us together through the time of the Lord's Supper. And if you're not a believer in Christ, just observe. This is just a time for you to observe and watch and you'll hear the gospel proclaimed to you. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for this time. I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that uh, you inspired Luke to write down these three specific gospel conversations for us so that we could see how to effectively do better evangelism in our own city. That we would be moved by those people that don't know you. That we would be moved for the Lydias of our city that are our friends. That we'd be moved for the slave girls in our city that have been beat up, been sinned against, been in some way held captive, that need our love and our time and our efforts and our, our desire to want to get into their messy lives, that we would be moved for the, this older skeptics in our life that really just need to see if we're hypocrites or we're, gonna, or we're real, whether we're really, to, really willing to cling to Christ no matter what happens that need for us to show them extravagant grace like you've shown to us. 
Lord, we love you and we want to be used by you. Help us. Help us. We'll give you all the glory. Be with us now as we take the Lord's Supper and celebrate your death, your burial, your resurrection, your body broken, your blood shed for our forgiveness so that we have perfect relationship with you now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.